Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. And we're back. So I'm going to try and start uh, each episode with a little bit of housekeeping and uh, make a little pitch. If uh, you find these broadcasts to be worth your time listening to, I hope you'll go and uh, support the effort. Patreon.com slash Taiji Reality, T-A-I-J-I-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y, if you want to materially help. And um, if you just want to kind of give us a little boost, apparently, they say it makes a huge difference. If people give a review on iTunes, or is there some sort of rating on iTunes? I really need to get this together, don't I? Yeah, promotion has never been my big thing, you know? And... I think I'm also going to talk a little bit about the podcast at the beginning of each episode because I'm learning a little bit more about what I'm doing as I'm doing it. And what I'm discovering is that the freewheeling attitude towards conversation has its benefits and its drawbacks. But I think that the benefits outweigh the drawbacks, even though it's maybe not as concise and Uh, thematic as I'd like it to be, and things are a little bit haphazard from time to time, Uh, the unexpected keeps coming up. And in some respects, that unformatted way of going about doing things is exactly what we need. Because my overall sense is that most people feel that we're in a period of crisis and that we're heading into a, a greater crisis. And I share that concern. So the way that we've been going about doing things, trying to kind of direct it, and in particular when it comes to discussion, public discussion, the idea that we have to have experts guiding us, that there needs to be a set of achievements that have to be accomplished before we can seriously consider what anyone has to say. I think that these are hurdles to some of the most interesting conversations. You know, typically uh, when you're having a public forum, people will be introduced on the basis of whatever it is that's supposed to make them legitimate, right? So they have these various accomplishments, they've gotten these degrees, And these people think that they're awesome, right? So they've had these accolades and, you know, endorsements by other famous, well-established people that give everyone a sense that, okay, this is someone that we should listen to. But, you know, at the same time, we're a civilization in crisis. And so it's the people who have been given these accolades, who have been bestowed upon with authority that have, in many respects, failed us. There's a wonderful Taoist passage that if I'd been prepared, if I was that kind of a podcaster, I would have looked up the passage and read it to you. But instead, I'm going to just have to, off the top of my head, try to summon it up and summarize it. And basically, it says something, it's talking about who should be listened to in the kingdom. It's making a set of distinctions about a good period of time where governance is enlightened and a 
more problematic situation. And it says that you know that things are functioning well when even the least person in the kingdom is allowed to have a voice. And that the converse is also true. That in periods of time where ordinary people are not given a voice and they won't be listened to by the ruler is the way that it's phrased in in that passage. It has to do with whether or not leadership is listening and who they're willing to listen to. So ideally, from the point of view of this text, a ruler will listen to anyone and everyone. And you know that things are messed up when they won't. So obviously, you know, that's maybe a tangential thought when it comes to the assembly of silence. I don't imagine that we're going to have any leadership listening. But this is nominally a democracy here in the United States. And uh, for many of uh, the overseas listeners, I imagine there's also a sense of citizen participation in the functioning of governance. Now, I think maybe we're losing that in some respects, and that's part of the crisis that's going on. But to the extent that we're still able to participate, I think we all need to be listening to not just the voices who have been sanctioned. Uh, Sanction is one of those weird words. It has so many different, it has two opposite meanings. It's very bizarre. We're going to have to talk about sanctioned at some point or another, but not just listening to the voices that have the stamp of approval by educational degrees or, you know, business achievement or whatever it is, the endorsement of other people who have been given the stamp of approval. Uh, But hearing voices from all of us. So I'm realizing that that's a big part of, of what this is about here too, because I find that the most interesting people are people who I've never heard heard of in the public discourse. People who I just happen to run into either online, which has been the case with Colin, or in my random happenstance just meeting people in my day-to-day life. And our guest today is one of those people. I was actually working for him, helping him build a fence with his son. And we got to talking. And over the course of a couple of years now, we've got to talking more seriously. And it's been a wonderful experience. This conversation that you're about to hear has a miraculous quality to it. If you can derive the essence of what we're talking about, there are some moments in the conversation that fill me with wonder how the theme re-emerges at different points in the conversation in a new light each time. And that the conversation ends up having, as its central structure, the theme that we're talking about. It's not that we're just talking about it, but that the talk itself becomes a kind of illustration of itself. Maybe I'm going a little too far with that. Let me know what you think.
At any rate, I am pleased to introduce my good friend Yair, who uh, is an Israeli citizen and who uh, lives nearby and who is going to provide you with a very interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, here we go with another episode of the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Mm. How to be, if you, for the first question, you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm working two tracks, <laughs> at least two. Uh, how to appreciate the uniqueness of every moment and not to see it as a running flow. Hmm. Huh. So, so every moment that comes to us is exciting as a new moment, not as a part of a, a flow. That's, that's a wonderful thing to consider. And... Difficult to practice, I think, for a, a lot of people when you're caught inside of a story and a narrative of what life is about and what you have to do and all of the things that are driving us. Mm. It seems like the kind of thing that, I mean, I know that that resonates a lot with many of the things that I'm working on and thinking about and trying to practice. Mm. But I also know that it's difficult, even when you have the idea, to not get carried into the flow of all of the stories that you're trying to maintain and to appreciate each each moment as you know it's a difficult balance because there's a i think a fear that comes up when you are thinking of letting go of all of the context all the stories that would get in the way of appreciating each moment well, the, the, you can't let go of all of that because it is what the it is what the gravity of life is about. Right. Because it's, that is your building stones. Right. But it is to remember, with the weight of everything in the past, the uniqueness of the next moment. So then, how do you practice those two things? How do you integrate the appreciation of each new moment? with all of the gravity of context from life experience and the exigencies, exigencies, I don't know what the right way to pronounce that is, but the, 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 the needs the, that you're the trying driving, to... The, oh, the, the rough, the, the sending that life gives you. you mean, yeah. yeah. And I, I think it requires, it, requires, uh, con- it requires one to be, uh, first of all, aware of it. Yeah. It's just like to become or to acknowledge the existence of that, the fact that every mo- new every moment is a brand new moment. To to acknowledge that, uh, do you think that it involves a contradiction? Do you have to embrace a contradiction in order to do that? It's a double-edged sword because you have to get into the habit of not being in a habit. Hmm. So that because is a contradiction. It is a contradiction. Yes, it is. It is you're right. It, it's a contradiction because in the way we are trained to view life, uh, cause and effect, cause and effect is the first thing. You do good, you get a good result. Uh, you continue, you 
put pressure on that you get a result from you know from continuation okay and then here i am saying something that is completely opposite the, the continuation you have to look at the next it's, you, you're not so concentrated on the continuation you are paying attention to your to the next unbecoming uh, the next becoming moment that has not yet happened so it is like in a way it's like a it's a very difficult task and i don't think it is uh easily achieved as a, and as a, it's not an achievement that you want to put as a goal for yourself if you want to feel good with yourself because you will find more you will be more time finding that you're not there uh, right. than, than, than you're actually there <laughs> right you know so it's just, it's a, it's one of the very highest it's the highest goal i think so there's another contradiction there in that you don't want to set it at a goal and yet it is the ultimate goal so we we do want to integrate this in some way into our lives and so getting into the habit of not being habitual yes right well it, it comes it, it comes it connect to a conversation that you had that i heard about the fact the meditation yeah exactly okay is the is it necessary or is it unnecessary okay is it something to is it a, is it an achieve is it for an achievable goal or is it to survive the next breath. Hmm. I heard one time a conversation about a, a Buddhist who produced a movie, the film about the Tibetan monks who wanted to bring a TV set to their monastery to watch the World Cup. Huh. Interesting. And and it's just like a and, and the whole story is just like about these two kids that are going from one monastery to the other because that's the way they deliver things. And they don't come back because they get stuck in a football game and they don't want to leave, you know. Because And it's just like, how do you deal with that? Um, so they asked him, uh, how do you as a Tibetan monk connect with the uh, the new technology and uh, producing a film? And, and, how, and he said, it's like, uh, how is it coming together with your meditation? With And he explained... That when you film, when you take, when you do a movie, you you, you shoot a lot a lot of footage. You have ten hours of uh, footage, and then you have to uh, what do you call it when you editing editing. Mm -hmm. You have to edit it, and you come up with two hours or an hour and a half of movie that tells the whole story. He said that's what meditation is basically about. At the end of the day, you have gone through those several hours of wake and dealt with life, with everything that comes to you. And when you sit and meditate, you basically are doing an editing for your experience and hmm. preparing yourself, seeing how to deal with the different subjects that came up, hmm. uh, seeing how to uh, you are affected from different things that you experience and see where to put it in your catalog of experiences so you can get yourself ready for the next uh, day and have a clear page to start with. Interesting. So that that's a way of thinking of meditation that includes the other meanings of the term where you say, oh, I meditated on this situation, something like that, yes. which is quite a different way of talking about meditation than what is normally thought of in the spiritual world. When you're talking about meditating, you're sort of doing the opposite of that, relieving yourself of the thought process about the events that occurred. 
you know, and that could also be part of a story. Like there's a bunch of stuff happening, and then you're sitting and trying to balance the mental activity of being engaged in all of that. Mm. Maybe that's kind of like an ordering process. It's like clearing things out and getting... uh, It it makes sense that that would be the best way to order things by relieving your connection to them and letting them be what they are. Yeah, and then you don't have to carry them as unknowns or unresolved. They right. are already they, they're categorized and you move on. Now that's a very disciplined way of life. Yeah. And we not all have that 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 discipline installed in us in the age of learning. Right. Okay, most of us are, you know, shut up and be and kids be quiet, don't bother me, don't tell me eat your food, do this, do you're always told what to do, you're always tra- you, you always have to obey a higher authority. Mm. All the years you grow up you don't ever get to think for yourself. And, do, and it's just like, oh, I'm so bored because nobody told you what to do. And if you can do it by yourself without thinking, there is never a, bore, a dull moment. Right. And always something going on, something you know, is, that's interesting that can take you places, but you always have to remember where you come from. You have to have a solid where you come from. Well, that's the thing that's tricky too, because what we come from is a world where we've been trained to think a certain way and to like you were saying before that the, the law of cause and effect the idea that by trying we're going to achieve a certain result and that somehow or another we can control our lives destiny by you know fitting in working hard and and adult kind of life we'll speak right adult life i mean it's kind of what we're all prepared for in one way or another and to yeah. you know people accept that or reject it to varying degrees but it is the overall program. There's basically a, uh, an authority that has a system set up that we're going to either plug ourselves into or not. The counterculture was an effort to try to do things differently. Mm. Um, and, you know, maybe with some mixed results, not really able to uh, reinvent the world, but at the same time having a huge influence on it, and a lot of people going their own way, uh, a kind of return of a sense of the of the individual spirit, but maybe not with the highest purpose that we had all envisioned at some point. Um, it seems like the the countercultural uh, movement of the '60s that really all this came out of most recently right. was a reaction to the corporate world that so many people got sucked into. And and yet it's been said many times that a lot of the hippies and people who uh, rebelled against that ultimately ended up going back into the corporate world anyway. Because the corporate world has some sort of, it's, it's sensible. There yeah. is this, it's an order. Yeah, and the moment you have, or things do want to get to order. The chaos is not always uh, the ruling thing. It might be some kind of an unorganized, but it, there is an order in this unorganized thing. And and I feel like um, when when the people from the West, the American society, let's say, got exposed to the Eastern. Um, philosophies uh, the people to people it wasn't like this knowledge wasn't there before it's just like some American people went to in, to India and met some babas 
that then had a, a different way of seeing things and it blew their mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they brought it to, the, to be a common knowledge to people who, did, who were so uh, Christian and, and so, so with religion that, that didn't give you any horizon or it gave you all the rules. It didn't give you any personal development in the rules. Although within some parts of Christianity, that expansive mysticism has always been a part of it. It is, but, but it was not the majorly, it wasn't the major population that practiced that. Most right. people went, they had an order, Sunday you go to church and, 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 and this is it. Right. This is how it is. Yep. A very regulated... Right, uh, and it's not about your personal experience, it's about the community and it's about how do you support it. It was a life. It's only in the 70s in the 80s that people started talking about what's my personal experience out of it? Where, what's in it for me? And, and meditation became... Meditation is a lonely practice. Right. It's not so... You, you can sit with other people and uh, in, in a room and meditate in the same space, but basically when you are the one in your own mind. Right. Yeah. No one's really going to help you in there. No, you have to undo. You have to undo the knots yourself, or do the knots yourself, and to undo them afterward. Uh, so, the the tension between the the aspect of this type of practice that's selfish, in the sense that you're taking time for yourself and you're exploring your own internal uh, terrain, mm-hmm. and the selfless aspect of spiritual practice. Mm. There seems to be a, a problem there quite often. It's how you meet with the community. Yeah, so then it's back to what, you know, what is it that happened to Christianity and why did it end up being uh, so restrictive where so many people were boxed into things that didn't give them a room for their own uh, personal being? You know, is that just a reflection of the of the industrialization of the world, or is it something that happens within organizations of people no matter what? It seems like that kind of... Um, I think in every, tradi- in every reality, that every individual has their own personal experience. The question is, how are they allowed to relate to it? Right. Is it, is it, a, is it going to be uh, with guilt, or is it going to be, is it your inherent... Uh, right to have personal experience, right? Or is it something that you have to be uh, thankful for? Or and it- and to what extent is the group that you're in going to encourage you or discourage you in exploring that terrain? Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it right. seems that that a lot of the traditional organizations within U.S. society, both in religious domain and also in just the social domain of ordinary secular social interaction and mm. in the business world and all that kind of thing, a lot of that was discouraged. You know, it was a relatively superficial way of going about interacting, but not across the board. There are definitely some bright spots. Well, we do live in a good world. We have a well, lot that's of, an interesting... That's, we have quite a lot of freedom we experience now a tremendous amount of uh, freedom of choice here in this in this uh, west uh, west coast America. R- yeah, um, it's it's a uh, 
there are there are boundaries. There are boundaries, you know, the, the and boundaries. and there need to be boundaries because, like you were saying before, chaos. You know, you can only have so much of that in any situation before it becomes unmanageable. You just can't exactly. So so that's true, but it's also. I've heard some people say things like, "Well, when it really comes down to it, the choices that we have are all about our person, the way the person, how we spend our personal life." Yeah, personal but, life and and purchasing decisions. You well, know, purchasing that's that's uh, yeah that's one <laughs> that's one, uh, and once you purchase, it's purchased, and then you obtain it, and then you have to, you don't have to think about it anymore. You're free. <laughs> you you, you so, can purchase your freedom. <laughs> so is that is that why we became a, uh, a a disposable culture where we're consuming things because in each act of consumption there's a little bit of freedom there because we can we're sort of free of the object once we possess it. Look at how maybe people, look how many cigarette people smoke. Huh? Yeah. They're not that expensive. <laughs> but but each cigarette you smoke is 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 a, is, is, a, is a one win. It's one win, but it's also further slavery. It enslaves you more in the long to, run. Yeah, yeah right. It's just like it's freedom and slavery at the same. It's a double-edged sword in in every. So it's symbolic freedom. It is symbolic, and I think uh, our metaphoric life is a lot more valuable to us than our actual life times, mm. because we 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 pamper our, our uh, we pamper ourselves, and for that reason. Because the metaphoric life, metaphors last for a long time. A moment is a goner. Hmm. And because of that metaphoric reason, to begin that with the subject, how to maintain the uniqueness of each moment. Hmm. Metaphor disturb that uniqueness of each moment because they they set you a, a, a set picture, a closed, a finished picture. So in a way, you could say a metaphor is an effort to extend a unique moment beyond its yeah. lifetime, yes. lifespan. Yes. Huh, that's brilliant. So, on another level, then, the freedoms that we have, if we're relying upon metaphor to exercise them, they're not real freedoms. Uh, well, yeah, they, they, can ha- they can be freedom or they can be you know, enslavement, but it is our freedom to choose whether to do them or not to do them. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and it's just like there is a short-term effect and there is a long-term effect. So you, you could say that every time you exercise the choice to engage in one of these metaphorical freedoms, you're setting the conditions of your slavery. Yeah, that's what karma is all about. <laughs> And that's why it's it's dealt with in such careful manner with people who who uh, dive into understanding what karma is, because huh. every blink of an eye is a karma in a way, you know. Right. You know, if, what if you hit a molecule of I don't know what with your eyelash? Uh huh. And, and it, it created it sets, a tumbling effect, or you know, a butterfly effect on on. Sets the universe spinning. Yes. Uh huh. So so it's just like that's how. Uh, how delicate it is, in a way. So that's why great care has to be taken in every moment. Yes. And that would be another reason to practice what you're, what you're 
talking about to here. To acknowledge that, that the fact that it can be practiced, even to acknowledge that. Because right. to practice it is difficult because the moment you decide to practice it, you haven't. Right. You know? So, <laughs> so but it's just, it's again, the met- it's just like, again, that's a double-edged sword because that metaphor of practicing it but how, how could we ever be led to getting to the point where we could practice it by not pra- by not thinking about it, by not engaging yeah. in it, if we hadn't thought about it beforehand? We so have to die. We have to. <laughs> and the Sufi, the Sufi die with each in- exhalation, and is born with each inhalation. You know, it's a state of madness. Mm. It's not a. It's not a functional state. Because but in some respect, respects, it's the most functional state. It, it's it, you know, if you're very refined, if, hmm. you're, if your intentions are very pure, you, ha- you know. And again, so so so, it's really to an individual interpretation, right? It's so dangerous too. Uh, yeah, There's because so much it can put you on a very high. You can think that you're standing very high, where your piss doesn't stink anymore. You right. know? It's like. <laughs> So that's like the the sattva guna. Are you familiar with the gunas? No. So the, uh, I believe this is a Hindu uh, way of of breaking things down. There are three modes of material nature, is what okay. guna means. There's rajas, which is desire. So the modes of material nature can be motivated. Things will occur because of desire. Okay. There can be tamas, which is ignorance. So things will be set in motion by people just not freaking knowing. And then there's sattva, where it's kind of like the enlightenment uh, impulse. So the the desire, it's kind of like a subset maybe of, of, of uh, rajas, because it's mm-hmm. kind of a desire to transcend the desires and ignorance of the world. To a higher level. <laughs> yeah, and it's also seen as one of those material modes of nature to try to free ourselves from it. Um, it's, it's not a battle that to be won. Huh. It's, it's, the, it's the process because it's going to be an ongoing process because how can you obtain at the unobtained <laughs> obtainable? You know? right. It's just like, and, and it's just like renounce <laughs> renunciation. Right. How can you go about with that? That's another, it's, it's an oxymoron in a way. You well, know? it's amazing that we can even refer to it. Well, these you are know, the questions the, that come up to the one who is willing to dive into the world of the gateless gate into the world of questioning uh, for the sake of the, of having the the dialogue um, and allowing it to go to any way it's, there is no right or wrong well it seems that the the dialogue is a way of exiting language that that on a certain level what we're really trapped in because of metaphor language itself is fundamentally a metaphor right exactly and so we're trapped in a narrative that's the that we use as the bread and butter of our life because we're social animals we have to communicate with each other language is everything to us and this is something that fundamentally punctures the the veil of language and gives us an opportunity to experience existence that breaks all the rules of language right Right, and and that's where it, that's where it's like when you sit and meditate, you basically overcome the sound barrier. But the joke is on you because you can't share it with anybody. <laughs> 
well, that's the that, funny that's thing. That's the whole idea. That's the whole. That's the, that's where we become confused because it's exciting. And yet it's not. But but why do we feel that we need to share it in order for it to be complete? Because because we are social, uh, you, we're social beings. We're social. If yeah. If you saw the movie Back to the Na- um, Back to Nature or Return, the, about this kid who is going to the furthest point, and and basically at the end he dies, and he says, "Joy is pointless if you can't share it with anyone." Okay. I wonder if that's really true. I mean, on some level, everyone feels that way, right? So it's true in that sense. But is it, well, you know, there is this idea of the sage living out there alone in a cave somewhere and being in bliss. And I know that that's been punctured a number of times. Like, I've, I've heard of people interviewing some of those people who will say things like, this is the last thing you ever want to do. <laughs> like, well, because, this is because a miserable it's like existence. The, it's, it's built on moments of excitement uh-huh. that, that you get... You know, when you search, if you sit and meditate, and you sit there and uh, you are thinking of nothing, okay, <laughs> that's which is silly. You're thinking, and, and it, little by little, you know, things fall and things fall and things fall, and eventually, if you sit long enough, to where nothing falling anymore because you are you are the falling, and to the, where this disappears, it's just it's a personal sensation. Um, Basically, you don't even want to come out from that sensation. If you get there, uh, it depends on your capacity. Many don't come out and tell anybody. They just stay there, and you don't know. I don't know. Anybody knows. And there's somebody who wants to share it with others to allow them, and they become teachers. They become leaders of people. And it depends how what is their capacity to how far they can lead somebody before they get confused and they, they have to be led out of there, you know? It's a dan- that's another danger. That, that is always a danger. Yeah. And how submissives are the people who are willing to be led, how desperate they are to be led. Or do they want someone who is going... Sometimes my sense is that people who are looking for a teacher like that want to draw the teacher away from that practice. They want acknowledgement they, in their own reality from the teacher where the teacher is beyond his own reality. Or they, or they want to believe that the teacher isn't real. In some cases, I think that, that, that what it, happens is it, it, the, the teacher gets drawn back into the, the world of the story, which is impossible to not do that because how would you convey? If you're going to be a teacher, you have to come back into the world of language to convey that this is what is possible. And, and because it's so threatening to the narrative of the world, there are people within this world who don't really want to believe that that actually exists. And so they will f- try to find ways to destroy the integrity of the teacher. Well, it's like um, within the 24 hours that every individual has in you know, in the cycle of day, we all have to fill fill in and empty. We all have to go through the cycle. We have to sleep, we have to eat, and we have to go to the bathroom. And we have to empty, and we have to sit and go through that act. It's the in-breath and the out-breath again, yeah. And that act is what keeps us uh, uh, humble and bring us back every day 
if we're lucky, right. <laughs> to this uh, to this moment where you say we are just uh, another. It's a it's a pump. It's, uh-huh. a, it's a feeling and an emptying. Uh-huh. A feeling and an emptying, and that is the grace that 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 is given to us to understand. But you can't because if you're in bliss, you don't have to empty. But but you are still you'll never be in bliss until you just let go of, of when when you excel when you empty completely you don't have to fill in, but we still have our body, that's the 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 thirst for the next breath, is not controlled. You cannot control it. You will be thirsty for the next breath. Right. You can excel, but you will always inhale. So is that related to the social urge? Is there a fundamental way in which? The emptying is like uh, all one alone, right? And so, the 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 reason why we seek out the other to share the experience of bliss is the same reason why God created. Uh, because how can you share? How can you enjoy an experience without sharing it? That's basically? why creation. That's what. That is the the. Reason for creation. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, there is no reason because why? Why would it happen? God had to share it with somebody. Yeah. To share it uh, because this. loneliness is unbearable. Well, uh, nothing starts from one. One stays one. Well, it might start from one. It maybe starts, it starts, but if in order to make more than one, two ones have to become together, or a one has to split, or the one has to split. Right. Yeah. Because there's fundamentally no difference between a one and a zero like a one all by itself with nothing else to compare itself to is basically a non-entity because you can't you need a mirror in order to see that there's something there that's right and and you have to have the split in order to create the other right wow that goes that's an interesting loop uh, it a, isn't, a yeah. Loop, thought loop. Uh-huh. Know, I mean, uh, but that loop maybe is because it's a loop that would explain why it generated. Well, it's a loop or it, a spiral. You know, it can be a spiral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think and, that's and, a better and word. I, and I yeah. think the spiritual, in a metaphoric manner, the spiritual look at things is how to create the loop into a spiral. An mm, upward spiral. Mm-hmm. So you're actually from every experience there is a gain. It's not that you gain, but there is a gain in perspective. Well, in some ways, there's no way. Hmm. I guess there are some loops that are not spiraling. So, like an yes. atom is basically a, re- a repeated movement. Yeah. That that doesn't vary much. There's maybe some variation when it interacts, mm. but by itself, it's holding on to its identity in a very specific way. Yeah. And we make efforts to do things along those lines in our technologies. So we try to have repeatable processes that right. bring you're about... Base, you're based on that. you got to have that... Mm-hmm. And our, our biology is also built in, in a way where it's there a, are loops and you want it to yeah. repeat. Mm-hmm. But it seems that in na- in nature, like once you get above a certain level of complexity, the 
repetitions aren't exactly the same. It becomes more of a spiral where there's a new condition that has to be taken into account with each repetition. And that slight right, variation... It, it, it's adding up. It's not, it's not pure. It's not, a, it's not a, a laboratory. It's not in a vacuum. There are so many components. There's so many others. Others, yeah. Yeah. That influence the, the motion. And it's maybe not even directly, but there is like you, you get the result of their existence. So that's the butterfly again. Like each thing which makes its signal radiates out into the cosmos mm. and with billions of billions of billions of them all doing their thing. Right, everyone is doing... <laughs> so, so I think in the... In the uh, it's, it is in a, way, a certain le- level of awareness that uh, you become aware of its existence that can, have, uh, can, help, you remi- can help remind you of the uh, newness of every moment inside of that re- flow of re- repetitions. Right. It's a, holding to a, a, a central organizing principle. Right. So you you have a uh, it's a continuity that relieves you of the story, and yet at the same time it grounds you in being. Wow, I like that. This, this, yeah, uh, how the, the thought went around. It was a it was an example of what we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was that was perfect. I think we could call that episode number one. Thank you so much, Yair. Awesome. We'll, uh, we'll do this again. <laughs> Beautiful. listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>